0: church on mill great to be with you today and hello to those who are at home due to health concerns thankful that you've tuning in been a wonderful morning so far and looking forward to opening the scriptures with you uh, my name is chuck and i'm excited to uh, turn to acts 19 this morning with you so if you have a bible please turn with me there and if you got a blue one in the back when you came in on those bibles uh, will be on page 541 page 541 in uh, the Blue Bibles. There are some uh, passages of Scripture that are so um, different for us than what most of us have experienced. They, they require us to really slow down and have a careful, thoughtful uh, teaching related to what they mean. And we come to one of those kind of passages this morning. The text we're in covers uh, Paul's arrival and much of his early ministry in the city of of Ephesus. The events we'll be looking at this morning likely occurred uh, between 52 and 55 AD. Although that was so long ago, what happened then and the record of them is still alive and active and ready by God's grace to change us for the better. If you're new to the Bible, we Christians believe that the scriptures tell us the very truth that We stake eternity and aim to live every day in light of what God says in His Word. If you're not a Christian or or not familiar with this part of the Bible, consider this the starting point in a conversation. I hope you'll decide before you leave to uh, carve out some time this week to spend with another person or two and and reread the passage and consider what it means in conversation with others. This morning, as we look at the first 20 verses, Josh Bond is coming to read. Josh is um, a new member and a resident here. And we're going to awkwardly clap one at a time for him. That's what's happening in the room if you're not on the live stream. Josh, welcome to Church on Mill. Thank you. This is how we roll. (laughs) Will you read for us, brother?
1: Yes. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Um, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth... After him, that is, Jesus. Page turn, you know. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying I adjure you by the name by Jesus by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this but the evil spirit answered them Jesus I know and Paul I recognize but who are you and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily.
0: Amen. Thank you, brother. The setting of our passage, uh, according to verse 1, is the ancient city of Ephesus. This is the same city where last week uh, Brandon uh, preached and did such a great job, helped us understand the ministry of Apollos and how he was helped by Priscilla and Aquila to understand the word of God more accurately. Now Paul has arrived at that same city. They have all gone on somewhere else. And he's there as part of his third missionary journey. Today I want to show you how these verses demonstrate that there is an unparalleled power in the Word of God. The text, at least in the English Standard Version, you'll notice is broken down in three separate paragraphs. And I want to just take them in that order asking God to teach us and transform us. First we'll look at the the 12 disciples listed in verses 1 through 7. Second, we'll consider the dramatic spread of the gospel in verses 8 to 10, and finally, we'll see Christ's decisive victory in verses 11 through 20. In each of these sections, although the circumstances and the stories are different, they all contain the same message. The same big idea, if you will, and that is that there is no power like the power of God's Word. So let's start first together in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 7. When Paul arrived at Ephesus, he found some disciples who were already there and had a problem the same or very similar to what Brandon talked about last week with Apollos. While they had believed in God and had certainly received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they were unaware that the Holy Spirit had come, fully inaugurating the new covenant era of the people of God. That's almost certainly what verse 2 means. To think that these people had been taught well about John the Baptist and about Jesus and yet had literally never heard the Holy Spirit existed is very, very unlikely. Now, it's far more probable that these Jews who were geographically distant from Jerusalem were Christians, but they just hadn't heard of what had happened at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. It's possible that Apollos, before he'd been served and helped and corrected by Priscilla and Aquila, had taught these disciples, and therefore they had the same theological deficiencies that he did. And so they shared Apollos' right understanding of Jesus, but they also shared his misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and baptism. Their knowledge of God was incomplete, and of that we can certainly all sympathize. We don't yet know everything there is to know about God. Think of this, in this case, as a a mini Pentecost, if you will, the last of four separate times this takes place in the book of Acts. Now because there's such widespread confusion about this issue today within the big C, the Christian church, not this particular local church, but generally all churches, that would be helpful to really slow down and and recount those four events for you in case you want to take notes and look at them later. The first time something like this happens, it is in Acts chapter 2, when followers of Jesus, people already Christians, had gathered together and were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. These were all Jews. And that's the first time the Holy Spirit came to indwell followers of Jesus. The next time this happened was in Acts chapter 8. This is when the very same thing happened as the Spirit came to indwell believing Samaritans. Again, people who were already Christians. And then, if you go forward another couple of chapters to Acts chapter 11, this is where the Spirit came and indwelled Gentiles. You'll see that in each of these cases, a different ethnic group was receiving the Spirit. Now, the last one is here in Acts chapter 19. This is the first, the last time, I'm sorry, in the book where something like this occurs. It's the last time where the Spirit indwells Christians at a time different than their conversion, and it's the last time we hear of speaking in tongues. This time, the Spirit is now dwelling dispersed Jews, Jews who had not gone back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and Jews who would likely not have been ones who would do so. It's estimated historically that of the 350,000 people that lived in Ephesus at this time, 100,000 of them were Jews. So this was a city full of people who followed the God of the Old Testament. Now for very understandable reasons, the events we've just read about can be rather confusing for Christians today, especially in light of the fact that There are dozens and dozens and dozens of denominations who believe or hold divergent views when it comes to baptism and the Holy Spirit. In many ways, these views are intramural, meaning uh, most churches who would hold different views of this are all still Christian churches, but they reach different conclusions on what this means. If you have questions about this, I'd encourage you to text that number in. I think it'll be up here on the screen in a moment. Text to that number and any questions you might have, feel free to send them in. After the gathering today, we'll be recording another sermon Q&A that'll be posted on YouTube later in the week. And if you're online uh, today, you can go ahead and stay there. What's critical to understand is this. Within the book of Acts, in particular, these four events I've just referenced... There are things that took place then that are not normative. They don't continue to happen. As a narrative, Acts is telling us what occurred. It's not telling us what we must cause to occur today. Many of these things that happened in those four events do not continue to happen in the same way because there's no reason for them to. Let me see if I can explain. One of the central promises of the new covenant is that in Jesus Christ the arrival of the kingdom has come and because the kingdom has come in Christ when Christ left and went back to the Father he sent the Spirit and the Spirit would now live within the people of God if you're a follower of Jesus no doubt you've heard this over and over and over unfortunately, perhaps so much that it has lost its power. But consider for a moment that being a follower of God in the Old Testament was different. You did not have the Holy Spirit permanently living within you. The Spirit principally was found in the temple behind the curtain where no one except one was allowed to go. So you see, the Spirit is not around us. God is not by us or near us. God is within. So cleansed, so forgiven, so full of mercy are the people of Christ in the new covenant that God Himself. has indwelled you. Now, do you feel him every day? Do you get goosebumps every time you read your Bible? Do all your questions instantly get answered? No, of course not. But the word of God says that God the Spirit has been given to you as a down payment guaranteeing the completion of all that God has promised you. So what this means is that the spirit has rendered us equals and that's why these events happened in the way they did in acts in order to show us that jews gentiles samaritans dispersed jews whoever anyone who has trusted jesus christ will find themselves equally sitting at the father's banquet of grace The normative experience of Christians today and the normative experience of Christians in the Bible is that conversion and being indwelled by the Spirit happen at the same moment. So when someone confesses with their mouth that they believe in Jesus and they turn from their sin and place faith in Him, then in the same moment they become Christians, they are indwelled by the Spirit and thus have permanently the dwelling of God with them. But within the book of Acts, at least in these four occurrences, it didn't happen like that. The order was different. They were fully saved, but they had not yet been indwelled. Why? Again, this was a decisive turning point in the history of redemption. Never before had this occurred. And so God wanted to make it abundantly clear. It does not matter your ethnic heritage. Because you have the Spirit, you are all the way in with God's people. And so he sought to do that in this repetitive way four separate times. And then subsequently, the people of God are to be baptized in water to show that they've been baptized in water the Spirit. This happens, again, in Acts and Stages to demonstrate that there is grace for every race. We non-Jews are fully included. That's a reason to celebrate. That's what happened to these disciples. If you want to study this further, in particular, if you are from a Pentecostal or charismatic background and you feel like this is different than what you may have been taught in the past, you might jot down Acts chapter 10, 44 to 48. That's the passage where we find the same type of thing occurring with the Gentiles. And here it occurs again in Acts 19. The upshot of all of this is that we see clear evidence of the power of God's word. That's what this is ultimately about. Look at verse 5, and you'll see three little words. It says, on hearing this. When the Apostle Paul showed up, and he found out through conversation and discerned that these people, like some other groups before, were Christians but had not yet received the Spirit, he asked them about it. And then he told them the whole story of what God had done in Christ and how the Spirit had in fact come. Upon just saying those words, the power of God was unleashed and the Holy Spirit changed them. Praise God for His power. A power to change our lives. A power to fill us with the Spirit. A power that throughout the day, this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we will have God with us, brothers and sisters. Rest assured, if you're a Christian, all the promises in the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of that has been poured into you because the Spirit is there. And we're all equals in this Spirit who has brought us into one family. That's what this text means in our situation today. That's great news. Now look at the next paragraph, and we'll do this one more quickly because it's more familiar to most of us. Verses 8 through 10 recount the dramatic spread of the gospel. In these three verses, we find Paul preaching the gospel initially to the Jewish synagogue for a period of three months. If you've been with us journeying through Acts, you'll remember that this was his proven strategy. And if you're new, let me just quickly explain. As this missionary went into new towns, he had to decide, well, who do I start with? Who do I share the good news of Jesus with first? And Paul's strategy was, as a Jew, he would go first to the synagogue. A synagogue was a gathering of Jewish people who got together on Saturdays to worship God. And He would start with them because they shared a common heritage and because they already believed much of what he would be coming to share. And then after he had spent time with them, then he would go on to people who had less likely heard the truth of Scripture. Eventually, significant opposition arose, and it arose in a public way in this synagogue. Verse 9 describes those who rejected Jesus as, quote, stubborn, end quote. Friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, allow me for just a moment to plead with you. Don't take that posture toward the grace of God. The Bible rightly says that God is good and that we as human being, beings or beings have been Made in his image, made to know God, to love God, to serve God, to follow God, to image God. And yet, each and every one of us have rebelled against his just, good rule. The result of that rebellion has been a fracturing, not only of humanity at large which is very, very easy to see today. But also of each and every one of us as well. And the only way back into a loving relationship with God, the only way out of the sole condemnation that we deserve is for someone perfect to take our place. Someone who could receive all of our wickedness and give us all of his righteousness. And friend, that's the essential message of the Bible, that that person exists and that that work has been done. His name is Jesus. That's exactly what he did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And today he holds himself out with open arms to you. If you would but turn from a life lived without him, and put your confidence in Him, then you will in an instant be permanently made right with God, forgiven, rescued, promised heaven, given the Spirit as a guarantee of what's to come. But if you remain stubborn in unbelief, you will stiff arm your only hope. If you have remaining questions about that it'd be our great privilege to talk with you there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people in this room who have already trusted christ why don't you stick around after and visit with a pastor or whoever you came with now when it became clear that in this synagogue there was only opposition to paul, to follow paul took the followers who had come to know jesus with him And very likely, he rented a hall owned by a guy named Tyrannus. And for two whole years, every day, Paul taught this budding church. Beloved, if we are careful to be doers of the word, not just hearers, then we've got to acknowledge that a church can never receive too much teaching. There's no such thing as we've got enough Bible. No, of all the subjects in the world that we can learn and give our minds and hearts to, learning from God's Word ought to be the very top of the list. You see, it is only in the Scriptures that we have the authoritative record of who God is and what God has done. And the Scriptures aren't simply for people like me, vocational pastors. They're for everyday people they're for all of us and you don't have to get a phd in theology to come to know god well simply got to spend time in a humble posture in the scriptures i want to encourage you in the coming week if you're not in the habit of reading your bible daily and of listening to good teaching that you'd begin If you don't know where to start, start in the book of Mark. It's the shortest of the biographies of Jesus' life. Begin and find another person or two who could read with you. Simply begin in prayer and then start reading. And there has never been a time in the history of the world where there are more good books to help us learn more about God. Check out what's back in the bookstall if you're here in person. Give yourself to learning more of God. You will be finding as you do so your joy increasing and your usefulness for the Lord expanding. Now, what was the result of this two years of daily preaching and teaching? Well, certainly we can assume that the Christians were built up. That's always what happens. And we can assume that more and more people came to trust in Christ in Ephesus. But neither one of those things are what the passage actually says. If you look in verse 10, you'll see that something else is emphasized. Like a pebble thrown into a calm lake sends ripples throughout the entire body. The preached word sent ripples of grace throughout Asia. During these two years, we know from other books in the Bible that Paul sent people like Epaphras and others to evangelize and start churches in surrounding communities. And it's very probable that the last book in the Bible, Revelation, which was written to seven churches, you can read about those in Revelation 2 and 3, it's probable that in addition to Ephesus, all other six churches listed there were begun during this two-year period of time. Not by Paul, but that as he preached and equipped people, they went and started these churches. What are we meant to take away from this? Well, the good news was sounding forth, reaching an entire region. Friends, there is no power like the power of God's Word. We can sit down and rest in that fact. Which brings us to the final paragraph in our study this morning, chapter 19, verses 11 to 20. Now, let's be real. Among all the paragraphs in Acts, this is certainly one of the most unusual. The word bizarre does fit. On the one hand, some of us either online or here in the room might want to reject it, this whole paragraph, as fanciful, absurd, embellished storytelling. While on the other hand, others, particularly prosperity gospel preachers, have used it as their model for ministry, seeking to replicate it again and again and again. And, friends, both of these are ditches to avoid. Neither one of them are what we're supposed to do with the paragraph. Instead, let's try by grace to sidestep them and walk a middle way, simply allowing the passage to stand on its own. What's captured here in this paragraph is that Christ has a decisive victory over demonic powers. Paul was by trade a tent maker and it's very likely that in the mornings he got up and in that cool part of the day he spent his morning doing manual labor and in the afternoon then he'd go to the hall and he'd preach. Now we of all people know if you do things outside you get sweaty and as Paul took off these his apron he used to protect his clothes and as he wiped his head with a hanky, people took some of these items and used them to bring about healing. Now, I've been a Christian for 32 years. I've traveled all over the world doing ministry and I've never seen somebody do that in such a way that it looked like it worked. But, Just because I've not seen it doesn't mean it didn't happen. We ought to be careful not to take a posture that says because I've not seen something, it must not be real. Remember, church, that miracles in the book of Acts are not there simply to wow us or to impress us. These aren't the ancient version of a dog and pony show. These weren't big events led by manipulative televangelists preaching material prosperity to all. No, these miracles served a very specific historical purpose. They were designed by God to authenticate the word that was being preached. See, because this was a new word, because at this decisive moment in time, things had changed. The Spirit was now going to dwell within every follower of God. So decisive. Because of that, God worked through miracles to authenticate what was said. They simply did not have what we would call the New Testament yet. It was unfolding. And the miracles served to both authenticate the preacher and that which was preached. God worked through Paul to demonstrate that the kingdom had in fact come. That the new world, the new heavens and the new earth were breaking forth. And these events serve as appetizers of the meal we will all enjoy when Jesus returned. Miracles and acts, you might say, are signposts pointing not principally to the The person being healed But to the trustworthiness And the power of God's word That's what they're about As people were healed in Exodus And in Ephesus It authenticated Paul And his witness Now an important question for us to ask This morning is do these Events happen today That's a reasonable question Well, think of this as one coin with two sides. Let's take heads first. On the one side, we Christians would need to readily admit God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing has changed about God. He can do whatever He wants. Whatever's consistent with the character of God remains a possibility for the work of God. Is God able to heal with hankies and aprons in Tempe? Yes. Absolutely. But let's turn that coin over to tails. We should point out that even during the very earliest days of the church, this wasn't common. And what we see in this chapter was even more uncommon. Uncommon. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 11. Do you see the adjective? Extraordinary. Now, forget you're in church and we're supposed to mind our manners for a moment. That's rather amusing. I think that's pretty funny. The irony is just dripping off the page. Because aren't miracles by virtue of being miracles out of the ordinary? (laughs) Isn't that what makes them atypical? These especially weren't run of the mill miracles. They were uncommon even in Acts. While God could certainly do this today, it is not normative, nor should we try to replicate it. That's not the purpose of the paragraph. Church on Hill won't be starting an apron and hanky ministry. Why? Well, friends, nowhere are preachers told to keep sweat rags with healing powers. Nor are Christians told to treat pastors and evangelists as having that kind of ability. This is a narrative It's telling us what happened. It's not prescribing for us what we ought to do. People using these tactics today are usually preaching a false gospel. They're usually saying, if you trust God enough, God will heal you. And if you send in 1995, then I'll mail you a hanky. I'm not kidding. But that's not at all what this paragraph is about. There's no apron ministries commanded or even modeled in the New Testament. We simply have a record of a very unusual event. But let's turn that coin back over to heads again. Because we ought not simply write this off. You see, while we're not commanded to take hankies with healing powers... What we are told to do is to pray. And if God is still a God of miracles, perhaps he'll do one today. What we are told to do is pray for one another. So friend, if you're in a situation that's bigger than you, and most certainly you are, then what should you do? Well, you don't need to go to the kitchen and get an apron or go to the drawer and get a hanky. You simply need to go to God in prayer. And we're told not only to pray for ourselves, but to pray for each other. And so there is everything right about asking God to do miracles. In fact, James chapter 5 explicitly commands, brothers and sisters, that when you are sick, you're to call for the elders of your church to pray for you. Now, the other major event addressed in this passage relates to a group of itinerant exorcists named the Seven Sons of Sceva. Now, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and say, you've probably never met a group of itinerant exorcists. But let me describe them for you. This particular family, these seven sons, probably showed up to Ephesus in a VW bus they likely ate tofu, and they rode unicycles around town. But in all seriousness, although this is weird to us, in the first century, it was very normal. This group was a big deal. Now, we don't have a ton of time here, but let me just make a few comments and try to appeal to you that particularly if this is weird or bizarre or seems hard to believe, That you'd spend more time reading and praying over these verses. That you'd find similar kinds of things in the scriptures and you'd visit with another brother or sister about them. Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was an odd mix of something like Wall Street and Venice Beach. Ephesus was the economic and banking center of the entire eastern half of the world. It was probably the fourth largest city And most of the money that flowed into Asia came through Ephesus. The wealth in the city was vast. Today you can tour it. The streets are made of marble. There are houses where entire floors are made of tiny little mosaics. The columns line the main thoroughfare. There's a theater that seats 25,000 people. It's a beautiful place even today. It's easy to taste something of the wealth that was there. But it wasn't just Wall Street, it was also Venice Beach. Have you been there? Walking down Venice Beach, what you can be sure of is you have no idea what you'll see next, including all kinds of people making all kinds of spiritual claims. You can buy charms. You can buy rocks, you can see a fortune teller, you can get your palm read. Probably what drove the preponderance of this kind of stuff in Ephesus was the fact that the temple of Artemis was there. Listed among the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple was over a football field big, and it overshadowed literally everything in the town. So central was the worship of Artemis to the whole city of Ephesus that all the commerce in the city was wrapped up in worshiping this goddess. Among the city's 350,000 residents, magic, spells, incantations, the occult, these, these were normal Using magic on someone was as common as having dinner. Now when this traveling group of exorcists came in on their VW bug, they heard that there was a new power in town. They heard Paul preaching this gospel of Jesus. And so they sought to siphon the power of the gospel for themselves when they had not believed And they thought merely by using a phrase about Jesus, they could somehow use his power. That clearly did not turn out too well. The humor in the text is easy to miss. But the point is, seven men who claimed to have a power, the power to rid some one individual person of a problem Found themselves beaten up, their cloaks ripped off, and them sent running in shame. Their occupation was rendered null and void. The point is, of course, God's word won't be manipulated, God won't be used. All the evil and dark magic the city of Ephesus could muster was nothing compared to the word of God. It's not that the demons weren't powerful. No, it's that God is far more. Now, before we go, would you give me a couple more minutes? What in the world do we do with passages like this? How, how is this useful for Monday morning? Well, let me give you two thoughts. Number one, one of the most effective strategies Satan and his demons have employed in the modern Western world has been to convince us that they don't exist. All the while wreaking havoc right under our noses. Church, may we become more aware There is a spiritual world that we can't see that has ever been as real as the material. It is all around us. I want to implore you today, don't dabble in satanic things. This isn't something you often consider. You might start by taking the letter to This same group of believers, the believers in Ephesus. It's the letter of Ephesians. Read in particular the last chapter, and it'll give you a great analogy to use as you start the day and pray for God to protect you from things like this. And converse with each other more about this. We need to raise our awareness. that there is a spiritual realm, and that this does impact daily life. Number two, the second point of application arises specifically out of verses 18 and 19. After the sons of Sceva were judged for their sin and were overshadowed by the superior power of God, notice what the Christians in town did. As news of this event was tweeted throughout Ephesus. The Christians became convicted about their ongoing practices of magic. You see, it's, it's possible to move from non-Christian to, to Christian and yet to keep a foot back here. To not give up everything from your former life. To reach back into some of the stuff you used to do. The members of the church in Ephesus confessed their sin. They made it public and renounced demonic ties, and they brought all their paraphernalia and made a holy bonfire. Brothers and sisters, what wickedness like this do we need to confess and renounce today? What practices have you retained that you know deep inside don't glorify God and they instead encourage a reliance on powers other than God? Today's the day to let all that go. You didn't come today thinking about this but God has said it before you. I wonder even if a couple of folks in the room or online, or a gospel community or two, need to get together sometime this week and, and have a holy bonfire. Bring your tools of sin and burn them to the ground. That has a cathartic effect of saying, I am done with this, I'm finished. May we turn from wickedness. May we savor Jesus Christ. May we trust God. May we fully come to see in new dynamic ways and say yes to them that there is no power like the power of God's word. Pray with me. Father, pray we use this word now to meet each one of us in our particular area of need. Where we've been relying on satanic powers, demonic powers, or our own power, pray today that we would see more clearly who you are. And I pray that each brother or sister here would give up that which continues. That's part of a former life. That we might more fully Glorify and enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen.